Welcome to episode 10 of the audio podcast, The Holocaust in Hungary, subtitled, It Can Happen Here. I'm continuing on now, November of 1944, picking up where episode 9 left off. The statement was made at the very end, almost every day some of the houses that sheltered Jews were raided by Aerocross gangs. They usually robbed the Jews, beat them senselessly, and many times killed some of them. One time I witnessed the brutality of two Aerocross youths. It happened in the bakery, where the baker, feeling pity for the Jew, gave him twice the amount of bread the Jew had the food stamp for. One of the Aerocross youths took the baker to the police station, accusing him of betrayal of the Hungarian people because he took away the bread from a Hungarian citizen and gave it to a Jew. The other Aerocross youth took the Jew to the Gestapo, accusing him of bribing the baker for his own advantage. This was only one case when an innocent Jew was deported because he accepted the kindness of a non-Jew, and the baker was jailed because following his heart, he was helping a hungry person. On November 13, 1944, the SS guards were chasing the Jews out of their houses to get them lined up for the march on the end of Dobbs Street. On the other end of the street, in a joint mission with Raul Wallenberg and his staff, we tried to get the Jews out of the ghetto, as many as we could. Wallenberg was packing people into his official Swedish consulate vehicles like sardines in cans. He took them to protected house on Vassy Street and tried to make another trip before the SS guards got closer. This time we used two ambulances and packed about 30 Jews into them. We took them to different locations temporarily because we had no time to fill out the documents. That day we made a couple of rounds and so did Wallenberg. Only one thing was sad about our rescue mission. Our effort to save people did not lessen the number of those who were rounded up for the marches. We were taking people away to safe places from one end of the ghetto, but at the other end, the SS guards rounded up and took away as many as they wanted to. On November 15, 1944, as the deportation on foot from Budapest to the Austrian border continued, more and more Jews were taken from their homes marked with the Star of David. Although some of them had protective papers from Swiss or Swedish consulate or the International Red Cross, they still were taken away because they did not live in the protected houses. After they were forced out of their living quarters, nobody was able to help them anymore. Those who were sick or too weak to march were shot before they started. The SS guard pulled his Luger out of his holster, walked behind the Jew, and shot him in the back of the head without any hesitation. They did not even bother to move the dead body out of the way. Everybody just stepped over it. After the marchers left, the Hungarian Arrow Cross Nazis took care of the corpses. The blood of those who were killed was coloring the white snow as they fell. The marchers stepped over or went around the dead bodies or the dying ones without stopping. Otherwise, the whip or the rifle butts were coming down on them. If you have not been there and did not see any of these savage brutalities with your own eyes, you cannot even imagine the terror that was sweeping through the European countries occupied by the German Nazi forces. As the deportation on foot continued from Budapest, the Hungarian government, with Ferenc Zelezi in power, agreed to establish an international ghetto in the city of Budapest. Consisting of 76 buildings already assigned to house Jews under Swiss protection. On November 17th, when we were on our way back from the suburbs, where we relocated a large family from Joe Street, 
and another party of six people were waiting for us on Terra's Karut. An SS unit stopped us and wanted to confiscate our ambulance. They were very serious and their guns were leveled at us. It was the very first time that such a situation occurred ever since the Nazis took over control in Hungary. They caught us off guard and for a few seconds I didn't know what to do. Good thing that I was talking the German language fluently. I explained to them that the ambulance is reserved for the Prime Minister, Ferenc Zelezi, and that we are on our way to his office. We had a forged document with the forged signature of Zelezi, and I showed that paper to the SS lieutenant, hoping that he cannot read Hungarian. He did not, and he accepted it. We were really happy about the whole thing and drove back to the capital to pick up and hopefully save six more Jews. We had all kinds of people in the organization. Members of the parliament, factory owners, prominent businessmen, doctors, lawyers, and several top military officers. But the most active and fanatic members of the underground organization were the six Jews who volunteered for the job. They all had Hungarian names for generations, but they were born Jews. Although they had Hungarian names, they still looked like Jews. And if you were born in Europe and lived over there during the two world wars, using common sense, you were able to tell who was German, Polish, French, Italian, or Jewish. Naturally, our Jews had Christian birth certificates and all the documents they needed. On November 22, 1944, some members of the underground were invited to a meeting at the Swedish delegation. Besides Raul Wallenberg, several other people attended the meeting, including the representative of the Swiss delegation, Miklos Kraus, who was Jewish, and also Jews of the Spanish and Portuguese delegations, Dr. Farkas and Dr. Korner, and representing the Hungarian Jews in Budapest, Ari Breschlauer. Monsignor Rada also sent his man, Sandor Yuzveri, who was a volunteer worker for the International Red Cross. After exchanging information, we came to the conclusion that to date, approximately 8,500 Hungarian Jews were already on German territory. About 1,500 will cross the border in a couple days. 13,000 Jews were still marching and will cross the frontier in four days, and approximately 11,000 were unaccounted for. We all agreed that something had to be done to try to help those with, whose protective passports were taken away in the brick, brick factory the night before the march started. Sandor Yusveri was given by Monsignor Rada several hundred safe conduct documents and Ari Breschlauer was given the official stamp of the Swiss consulate, a typewriter, and hundreds of blank protective passports. On November 23, 1944, in an official car of the Swiss consulate and driver, they drove away on a chilly winter night to catch up with the marchers before they crossed the Austrian border. After they caught up with them, in the following three days, they gave out as many protective documents as was possible. According to their report, they managed to pass out over 400 safe conduct passports. When they returned to the capital on November 28, they made their reports to the head of the consulates and to Monsignor Rata. According to their report, they caught up to the marchers at a frontier city before they crossed the border. The marchers were exhausted, hungry, and many of them sick. Hundreds of the sick and those too weak to march were locked in a barn like animals. They had no food, no medicine, or medical care, not even water. They had to suffer so much before they died. 
They were laying there on the bare ground during the cold nights. They could not even cry anymore, and many of them were dying slowly. In one barn during the night, more than 20 people died. Those who had money or jewelry could buy a cup of water or a thin slice of bread from the Nazi SS guards. The marchers were kicked and whipped or hit by the butt of rifles without any reason. The brutality of the Hungarian gendarmes was similar to the way the German Nazi SS guards handled the Jews. Breschlauer managed to get into the barn and talk to some of the Jews, but he was chased out by the Hungarian gendarmes. In his opinion, none of those Jews were able to work, some of them could not even walk. Despite their physical condition, the German SS guards and the Hungarian gendarmes refused to release them. On his way back to Budapest, he saw a group of several hundred marcher, marchers, most of them older people or pregnant women. None of them was able to do any hard work at all. He asked the Hungarian gendarmes who was in charge to permit him to pass out protective papers and let the Jews return with him to the capital. But he was turned down. They did not let him talk to the Jews anymore. He was forced to leave and they warned him not to return or he will find himself between the marchers. Later, we heard from eyewitnesses that all those Jews were taken to the bank of the Danube River where they were murdered and their bodies were thrown into the river. Those approximately 11,000 unaccountable marchers, most of whom were brutally murdered because they were sick or so tired they were unable to move, many of them died from the torture or just starved to death. Approximately 900 escaped from the German and Hungarian guards with the help of local Hungarian people who helped to hide them in their houses or barns. We were never going to know their names, but those who were saved will never forget them. After the Hungarian government acknowledged the huge losses of the marcher, Ferenc Zelezi, against the Nazi order, put a stop to further deportation. By the order of the government, those marchers who were still on Hungarian territory were allowed to return to Budapest. By the end of November 1944, still 125,000 Jews were living in Budapest. They were living in ghettos and different houses under the protection of neutral countries. Although Prime Minister Ferenc Zelezi stopped the on-foot deportation, he did not stop the Nazi Eurocross gangs from robbing, torturing, and killing the Jews living in the capital. Not even one poster or order was issued which would prohibit and punish brutality or murder committed against the Jewish population. As the communist forces were getting closer to the capital, the brutality and crime exercised by the Eurocross gangs and the Hungarian gendarmes were increasing rapidly. With the behavior of the communist Russian soldiers towards the civil population on the already Russian-occupied Hungarian territory was no better either. The drunk and uncontrollable Russian soldiers were roaming the streets of the larger cities like Debrecen, Miskolsk, Zolnok, Eger, and from the report of the eyewitnesses they were raping women young and old, and when some of them tried to run away they were shot to death. They beat up men, young or old, for no reason. They entered stores and took everything movable. If the store was closed, they broke in and robbed it. They destroyed the monuments and robbed the churches. People were afraid to leave their homes day or night. In other words, the communists destroyed everything that was left by the Germans. They were encouraged very much by the head of the communist forces, Marshal Malinowski. Editors note here, uh, I had heard in the past when the Russian army entered Berlin at the end of World War II, 
their soldiers were given free reign and told to rape any woman between 7 and 70. Beginning in December 1944, the international ghetto included 76 buildings under Swiss protection, housing almost half the present Jewish population of Budapest. So far, these buildings, all of them under Swiss and Swedish protection, were honored by the Nazi Aerocross gangs. But the ghetto, not under the protection of any neutral country or the International Red Cross, and the houses with the yellow star on them outside the ghetto were not safe at all. Charles Lutz, the Swiss vice consul in Budapest, tried to get military protection for the, for the international ghetto, the way the violence was increasing in Budapest. He knew that sooner or later, the Swiss flag in the, on the protected buildings would not stop the Aerocross gangs from entering the buildings and terrorizing its inhabitants. Prime Minister Zelazy refused to provide any military protection because the fighting forces on the Eastern Front needed all the able-bodied soldiers in the military. After a while, through diplomatic channels, he was instructed to see a top military authority in the military base on Uloi Road. The general, who didn't like the Nazi SS and the Gestapo activities in the capital anyhow, agreed to provide a three-member guard on each end of the international ghetto. The guards were on duty 24 hours a day in six-hour shifts. Charles Lutz's wish came through, but toward the end of December, the presence of the guards was ignored by the heavily armed Aerocross gangs anyhow. On December 15, 1944, Raoul Wallenberg called for another meeting in the Swedish consulate. Wallenberg, Charles Lutz, and the head of the International Red Cross were concerned about the Aerocross gang's brutality and the killings, which were almost an everyday event on the streets of Budapest. The Swedish and Swiss consuls sent a written plea to Prime Minister Zelazy to put a stop to the brutal, senseless killings of the Jews by an order of the Hungarian government. But Ferenc Zelazy, a fanatical anti-Semitic leader, plainly denied any help from the Hungarian authorities to stop the unjustifiable killings of the Jews in the capital. Prime Minister Zelazy, regardless of how he felt about the Jews, could not do anything by himself because he was only Hitler's puppet. The Nazi SS officers and the Gestapo made the rules and the laws in Hungary and the Hungarian government could not do anything but obey it. What the representatives of the neutral countries and the underground were afraid of was that before the communist army would be able to invade the city of Budapest, the German Nazis and the Hungarian Aerocross gangs would exterminate the entire Jewish population of the capital. The order from Berlin definitely proved our fear. By that time, the government did not have too much military force in the capital. All the divisions were fighting on the Eastern Front, which was very close to the capital already. On the Eastern Front, the mostly Hungarian military were fighting the communist forces. Hitler kept only the absolutely necessary forces on the Eastern Front to make sure the Hungarian army will not stop fighting. Hitler started to concentrate the Wehrmacht right on the German frontier. Later on, that tactic did not work the way Hitler thought it would. When the Red Army started to invade the city of Budapest, the Wehrmacht, the SS units, and the Gestapo were running like chickens without heads. But right then, we knew we had to find a way to get out as many people from the houses with the yellow star on it as we can. To rent an apartment in Budapest started to be a problem. Due to the continuous bombing of the capital by the Western powers, more and more houses were demolished or unfit to live in. 
This situation made the rent skyrocket and unaffordable for the people in the low-income bracket. Rollenberg had enough money available through his fund to pay the high rents if it was necessary. The shadows started to work again. By an agreement with Wallenberg and Lutz, we were going to provide the new birth certificates and identification papers, and they will take care of the housing for the new Christians. Raul Wellenberg rented several single houses for his staff and his own purposes. He also rented small apartment houses with four to six units. Using his official car from the Swedish consulate, he smuggled out six Jews at a time from the ghetto and took them to the building he rented for them. When he arrived at the other side of the city at the house rented by him, he escorted the people into the building. Naturally, the Jews did not wear the yellow star armband any longer. We had another thousand new birth certificates ready to fill the names in. Everything was going fine. The only thing that bothered us was that it was only a very small percentage we could save from the 125,000 Jewish population of the capital. On December 19, 1944, one of our undercover men reported that an Aerocross gang was going to raid the ghetto on Ishten Hege. We used the military ambulance again, and in three trips we smuggled out 25 people. We had three apartments with two bedrooms each. We had no choice and had to squeeze 25 people into the three apartments. It was a little tight situation, but they lived there without any problem until they were liberated. Usually we didn't use force, but in certain circumstances we had to. On one occasion we had to go to a military base in Buda. Between our building and the River Danube was one road only. On the way near to the base we spotted two Aerocross Nazi youths who were holding a couple dozen Jews at gunpoint and were throwing the Jews into the river one by one. We stopped them and leveled our guns on them and, and instead of shooting them, we made them jump into the river. I don't know if they swam to shore or drowned, but it didn't matter anyhow. The rest of the Jews said they would already killed six of them before we showed up. We took the rest of them to Lutz's protected house. Charles Lutz had some connections in the near provinces and in the suburbs of Budapest too. Besides his Swiss protected houses, he had some other buildings available too. He kept these buildings for those people who were given new birth certificates and other documents by us. Sometimes one of us went with him to help him fill in the names on the new birth certificates or anything else he needed help with. Sometimes he was racing with his official automobile of the Swiss consulate and he took Jews as far as 100 kilometers to the provinces. On December 20th, 1944, Raul Wellenberg left a message for me to call him immediately regarding a very urgent matter. Talking to him, I found out that four Jews from his protected house were picked up by the police and kept in jail. Two of the Aerocross members had called the police while holding the Jews at gunpoint and charged them with unlawful behavior and took them to the nearest police station because they did not wear the identification sign the way it was described in the last Jewish restriction law. According to that law, the yellow star on the white armband had to be the exact size and color. After the armband was washed a few times, it shrank and the required color, canary yellow, became a faded yellow color. Anybody who did not, did not comply with the law was subject to arrest and transferred to the deportation camp. Once somebody was transferred to the camp, it was almost impossible to save him or her from deportation. It was a stupid, unjust law which was enacted by the stupid Nazi lower politicians. That law became obsolete immediately when Russia took over power and became the ruler of Hungary. Wallenberg did not have the authority to override the ruling of the city's police department. 
Besides, previously he had clashes with the department already. He turned to us for help. He knew that the underground had connections and undercover agents even in the police department. About 70% of the police department in Budapest was poisoned by Hitler and Zelazy's ideology. The rest of them still believed in freedom and human rights. We found the right person and Wallenberg's people were released from jail before they were transferred to the SS camp. It's at this point that I'm going to end episode 10 of the audio podcast, The Holocaust in Hungary, subtitled, It Can Happen Here. During the the entire editing of this, which took place from October 22 till about May of 23, I could frequently only go four or five pages because this was so difficult and so painful to read for the first time. The next section covers Christmas of 1944. And I'm feeling that same overwhelming feeling right now. So I'll stop and describe Christmas in Hungary in 1944 in episode 11.